Hello, thanks for listening. This is the American Cancer Society's Theory Lab podcast. I'm Joe Cotter, and I work on the side of our department that funds cancer research around the country. Um, but for this conversation, I spoke with three ACS scientists who work down the hall from me in our intramural research department conducting research. So got the three of them together to talk about colorectal cancer research, and they're kind of coming at it from some interrelated but, but different perspectives. Um, first, Pete Campbell. He's, um, he's integrating pathology, genetics, and molecular biology into epidemiologic studies. He's our strategic director of digestive system cancer research. Stacy Fidua, her work is more focused on disparities in access to cancer screening, along with the quality of cancer screening in, in relation to cancer outcomes. She's our strategic director of risk factors and screening surveillance. Uh, last, Becky Siegel. Everybody knows Becky because she's the lead author of our annual cancer statistics article and cancer facts and figures publication. Um, she's our strategic director of surveillance information services. So this is a fun conversation. We started by asking them, what are the most important unanswered questions in your field? Well, there's, I mean, there's, there's two ways, I guess, to consider that one. There's the very global question, I think, in epidemiology and, and colorectal cancer is probably related to tumor heterogeneity. And we know that no two tumors look alike on a molecular level. So what are the causes and consequences of that tumor heterogeneity? Um, that's certainly a big one. You know, you know, smoking is a risk factor. Red meat intake is a risk factor. You know, there's a dozen other modifiable risk factors for colon cancer. But we know that each, or at least we suspect that each of those risk factors have a different molecular relationship with, with the disease. And what are those? So what are the somatic changes that occur if you eat far too much red or processed meat? Um, and those differences with red meat intake are probably different than you know, the molecular differences that you would see with obesity. So that's one thing that we're really interested in. Um, and that's not one thing, that's a really, you know, it's a huge area, um, just the, the whole Omics area is, is really exploded probably in the last five, six years with uh, next-gen sequencing. So that's, that's probably the biggest unanswered area. It's certainly not a singular question, but it's, it's an area that we're most interested in. Unraveling tumor heterogeneity. Yeah, understanding what causes it. And then, you know, if we consider risk factors, so that's prior to diagnosis, what leads up to that diagnosis, then afterwards what implications do those differences in tumors have on prognosis or on survival down the road. So after we account for survival or after we account for stage and treatment and all those other factors that we can hold constant, if you have a, you know, a series of mutations in one group of genes, why does that influence a person's long-term prognosis over a different series of genes? Um, so that's the, sort of the front end and the back end on tumor heterogeneity. Is there more heterogeneity with colorectal cancers than with other cancer types? It's a good question. Um, it depends on which ones you want to compare it to. Um, it's probably, you know, a little more heterogeneous than, say, breast cancer or lung cancer hmm. and perhaps melanoma. Um, the, the TCGA results would probably be the best to compare that to. Um, I can't recall, you know, off my mind exactly which ones were the most heterogeneous. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Um, colon was like the upper, yeah, 25th percentile from that, from what I recall. Uh, I'd have to look at the results, though, to be sure. Mm -hmm. 
but within colon tumors, yeah, there's, you know, just considering like the, the somatic mutations alone, there's, you know, there's a hundredfold difference between the most hypermutated tumors. So that would mean, you know, every, every hundred thousand base pairs or so, there's a new mutation at the extreme end. And then at, at the other end, you can go almost to a million base pairs without seeing a mutation. Uh, and those would be two, um, you know, two tumors that otherwise had the same stage, same histology, same subsite, same age in the patient. So that's been pretty fascinating to look at. Yeah. Have you have you looked at it by race ethnicity at all? So I'm wondering, like, not not so much yet. So mm -hmm. TCGA was is probably the best comparison here. Mm -hmm. um, most of these patients so far have been largely white. Okay. Yeah. We've just finished in in CPS two. We've just finished. Uh, targeted sequencing about 800 samples from uh, people in CPSD that are diagnosed with colon cancer. And we're just starting to look at the data now. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's literally hot off the presses. Um, and the, the analysis hasn't been completed yet, but that's just going to be interesting. Yeah, no. You look like you're about to say I, something. No, I'm just, I, we hear about CPS2 all the time, and we hear about CPS3 all the time now. It just really, it kind of blew my mind for a moment that this stuff from CPS2 has still got so much more meat on the bone. Um, oh, it's, it's an incredible resource. And CPS3 is only going to be bigger. Yeah. Uh, but it is, it is so much newer that uh, there are not that many cases that have been identified yet. Yeah. So I think in, in CPS3... You know, which only ended enrollment in 2013, uh, we have about 100 uh, colorectal tumor samples in-house. And from probably all of those patients, or very close to all of those patients, uh, we would have had a, a pre-diagnostic blood sample drawn as well. So we're able to measure things in the blood that happened prior to diagnosis. We have extensive survey information years before their diagnosis, and then we'll have tumor samples uh, from their colorectal surgery. And once those numbers get a little higher, we'll, you know, we'll be probably well-powered, well-positioned, do a lot of more detailed omics kind of, you know, omics environment tumor um, sort of studies. So that's just going to be very exciting down the road. So to narrow the scope a little bit from um, the interesting stuff that Pete's talking about, Another area of active research in colorectal cancer is the increase in incidence in young adults. And uh, this is in contrast to older age groups, uh, 55 and older, in which rates have been declining since the mid-80s because of changes in risk factors and the uptake of screening. But in people younger than 55, at the same time, you've had this increase um, that followed declining rates actually and um, so now since since the mid-90s there's been an increase of one to two percent per year pretty consistently um, and because of the diverging trends in the older and younger age groups you have this growing gap in risk so millennials now have twice the risk of a colon cancer diagnosis compared to someone born in the 50s at the same age, and for rectal cancer, because rectal cancer is driving the increase, it's four times higher risk for rectal cancer. And no one, no one right now knows why, why this is happening. The, our sedentary lifestyle is, you know, the obvious culprit, but the data suggests that there's something else going on. So 
for example, if obesity was the cause, you would expect the increase in incidence to follow the rise in obesity, but that's not that's not what's going on. They're they're actually parallel, the timing of the of those two trends. So, um, and some other clues that surveillance research has been able to uncover are differences um, in the trend, like by race and ethnicity, which is pretty surprising, um, because again, the obesity epidemic has affected across race and ethnicity, but really it's non-Hispanic whites that are driving this increase in early onset disease. So that doesn't perfectly fit um, with, with obesity. And then another thing is some of the risk factors. There, like Pete mentioned, we know there are so many known risk factors for colorectal cancer, but physical activity is very strong one. Physical inactivity is associated with increased risk of colon cancer, but at least um, based on data from older age groups, it's not associated with rectal tumors, and it's, it's rectal tumors that is driving this increase. So, um, You can actually say the same thing about men and women, too. The rates are roughly mm -hmm. equal in men and women. The patterns. Yeah. The patterns are equal, and the, the, the sex gap is much smaller. In fact, under age 40, there is no gap. Rates are the same. Yeah. In men and women, and then there's then there starts to be higher rates yeah. in men for in their 40s. Yeah, and if these increasing trends were simply being driven by obesity, we'd see the colon cancer rates increase more so than exactly and because and more so for yeah. men than in women too. Right, because that's right. the pattern of right, right association that we see in those those two subgroups. Right. And you'd also when you I mean you see it also for Hispanics. Right, and exactly. More, I mean, even Asians that have low rates of obesity, mm -hmm. but it's been increasing. So mm -hmm. across the board, you, there have been these increases. And if anything, the, the magnitude of the increase in obesity has been the largest in the black community. So, so this is U.S. we're talking about then? Well, it is U.S., but we, uh, there, there have been several uh, studies that have come out of other countries, and we're doing analysis right now that's looking at 40-some um, different countries. And you'd see the same pattern where there's either stable or declining rates in the older age groups and increasing rates in the younger age groups in about... Uh, seven other countries, high-income countries, New Zealand, Australia, Canada, Denmark, Germany. It's not exclusive to the U.S. at all. No. It seems like a very white, affluent mm -hmm. thing that's happening. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Although you don't see it in some countries where you might expect it, like in Italy, rates are declining in younger and older age groups. So... Um, and that could be because of higher use of screening in younger age groups. Um, we're writing this up right now, and, and one of the co-authors mentioned that. So apparently there's different, different use of screening, more liberal screening in some countries in younger age groups. So we'll come back to maybe talk about, like, um how we can kind of pursue answers in these spaces. But I wanted to ask Stacy mm -hmm. what you think about some 
kind of looming challenges? Um, well, I most of my research is on colorectal cancer screening, um, and ACS just recently lowered their recommended screening age to 45, and it's to piggyback on what Becky was talking about, um, we have tried to see if younger people are just getting more colonoscopies because um, it's not only used to screen for colorectal cancer but other um, digestive issues. Um, and we, based on some preliminary results, um, we don't think that it's driving it because colorectal colonoscopy hasn't really increased that much um, in people in their... In their um, early 40s, not at the rate that we would expect to explain um, this increase in colon and rectal cancer. Um, Have insurance companies started going along with the recommendations? Well, that's another um, thing that I think is important that we kind of look at. I'm not sure if we have any information on that. Usually insurance companies follow um, U.S. Preventive Services Task Force. Um, That's what the Affordable Care Act uses as their basis for removal of cost sharing. Um, and the Youth Preventive Services Task Force um, hasn't updated their recommendations. I think um, that will be reviewed. Um, I think, I don't know when it's coming out. They've just, they've just um, started that process, yeah. and ACS and ACS can provide comments on the draft. So I think the, for the updated screening guidelines, yeah. so I they're th- beginning that. Mm-hmm. So I think we'll see what what you know how how screening gets implemented um, in people forty five years and older. Um, but I will say one thing. One thing that I think is important is that even people 50, 50 to fifty four years of age. So screening has been historically recommended beginning at age fifty. Mm-hmm. But what we've seen is that people in that kind of young fifties age group, um, they they are waiting a number of years to get screened. Um, so less than 50% of people in their early 50s have been screened for colorectal cancer. Is, so that, is that rate kind of in line with what it's been in previous um, generations, or at least like the last 10, 20 years? Well, it, is that um, rate changing much, do you know? I'm trying to think about have, if I've looked at that over time. Um, it's definitely not as increasing as much as in older mm-hmm. in older groups. Um, oh, it's increasing more in older groups than. Well, I, I that I'm not. It's true it's, because we did we look did, did we, we, we did look, look at that, that a little yeah. bit, and it's it's increasing in the fifty to fifty four, right. but really always lagging way behind. Right. Because people 65 years and older, their colorectal cancer screening rates are greater. And then also Medicare expanded coverage for colonoscopy in the early 2000s. So that really improved screening rates among people 65 years and older. But you have to remember, people in their 50s might have more logistical barriers. They might be more likely to be working. And um, also there's a greater proportion who are uninsured and Medicaid insured. So that's another barrier in those younger, relatively younger age groups and getting screening. Does Medicaid not cover it or? Well, um, so there's a couple, first of all, um, you know, there's certain states that haven't expanded Medicaid and there's variation in what Medicaid will cover because it's a state program. Um, so some states, there's variability in, in the tests that are covered and, um, and also kind of the screening process is it the easiest thing um, to complete for patients because it requires a referral. Um, but That's we ha- interesting because mm-hmm. even with the Affordable Care Act, 
Mm-hmm. I thought they were trying to ensure that all these preventive services right. were covered. But it only applies to privately insured and Medicare insured. Um, and I think there was this George Washington, or, or a project that the National Colorectal Cancer Roundtable commissioned, um, the uh, George Washington Policy Institute to implement. And I was amazed at how much work they had to do to figure out what Medicaid did cover because it, every state has their own policy. Isn't that confusing? Because mm-hmm. yeah. I thought I could just, yeah, I thought I could just look at a table and see, oh, what do they cover? Yeah. I could Google it, and it actually... Wasn't nearly that easy. Yeah, they had to call e- or contact each state, and it's mm-hmm. not uniform because of the way Medicaid is administered. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, you know, certain having insurance is better than not having insurance, Medicaid... We see higher screening rates in people who do have Medicaid than who are uninsured. Yeah. Um, and we recently do most insurance carriers generally cover it if it's asymptomatic at whatever age USPT Yes, yes. Although um, there's a, interestingly enough, I don't know if you're familiar with the Medicare loophole. No. So um, the, when the ACA came out, they removed cost sharing for colorectal cancer screening for commercially insured people and for and Medicare kind of adopted that. But in Medicare's language of the law, they said um, we'll co- that Medicare will cover screening colonoscopies. And the way they defined screening colonoscopies was whether if there was no polyp found. Mm-hmm. So if somebody comes in for a screening colonoscopy and a polyp is found, it will be deemed diagnostic. Mm-hmm. And then they might be charged up to 20% for the colonoscopy. Really? So it's like a surprise charge. And... Um, ACS CAN has been working on this. It's a horrible way to define screening. Yeah, and I, I agree. And also, if it's you... It's defined if you, retroactively. Yeah. Right, and yeah. if you think about it, like if I'm, if I'm somebody who has a limited income, and me, it also it applies for people who get a colonoscopy after a positive stool test. So if I'm trying to go yeah. with like a cheaper option, and yeah. I get a, posit, a stool test and it's positive, and then I have a follow-up colonoscopy, and that's part of the screening process, yeah. but it's deemed diagnostic. And I thought, um, I kind of waved my hand at this at one point. I was like, oh, it's probably yeah. not that important. But I had talked to one of my mentors at UPenn, and he said, no, like, people are being asked to put a credit card down yeah. when they get a colonoscopy. Um, and that's just anecdotal, but I yeah. just, so I, do, I think that's a really just important issue. Just in case issue. you get some bad news so we can charge you. Yeah, and it's the whole point of a colonoscopy is to remove a polyp. Yeah. So that's one yeah. thing that ACS CAN is working on. And there is legislation pending, I think it's in the um, Senate, um, that they are trying to get over this loophole, but they've been working at this for a number of years. Wow. Um, and there's some really talented researchers in the Netherlands who wrote a really nice paper showing um, that it's actually charging people um, for colonoscopy is not cost effective. Um, so they're trying to provide evidence to Medicare that it's a good idea to cover. Well, what you were saying about Medicaid earlier mm-hmm. was surprising. Like, I know that there's variants across states that mm-hmm. Medicaid is implemented mm-hmm. and carried out differently, but I thought there would be some kind of central governing something or other that data from different states could be mm-hmm. collected and organized in a way that yeah. made sense. But. Well, that's what the George Washington researchers did, but I just, there's, it's, 
I'm, but they I'm had cold and all that. Too. Yeah, it's, and, and that's where I think like Medicaid is confusing to me yeah. at least. And I I should say I'm not an expert. I haven't used Medicaid claims data or anything, but I'm just surprised at how much variation there is. And yeah. um, in relation to lung cancer screening, I was recently asked what's the variation of Medicaid coverage for lung cancer screening and. Again, I'm not... Not a straightforward question to ask. No, no, no. So that, that's that's fascinating, huh? And, yeah. um, and frightening. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but we have, I mean, we are, we do have a paper looking at the expansion of the affordable care. So certain states expanded Medicaid. And as I mentioned, having insurance is better than not having insurance, sure. even if it's, um, if it's Medicaid. And we did look at... Um, states that expanded Medicaid in relationship to colorectal cancer screening. Um, we have um, some preliminary results that suggest that states that have expanded Medicaid have, have uh, are experiencing um, improved colorectal cancer screening rate for low-income adults. Okay. So, so there, there's some good news, I guess. Yeah. But ironically, the states that expanded Medicaid mm-hmm. were doing better to begin with. Yeah. Now the gap is just Exactly. Bigger. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, the, st- the people who probably... The people who really needed mm-hmm. needed help mm-hmm. yeah. need to move to another state. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, So, it's really fun listening to you all talk about your work. Um, but it, sometimes, it, I guess in a, way, in a way, it's kind of distant from patients, right? And so if you're thinking of like a, a colorectal cancer patient or survivor or caregiver or whatever um, how would you explain to them why your work matters to them or um, why it's an important time to be doing this kind of work do you know what I mean yeah so we've done I mean probably the the, the best example for in our group with colon cancer or colorectal cancer we did a series of studies on lifestyle risk factors that may or may not influence survival after diagnosis. I think we're, I think we just published our ninth or tenth paper on that topic. Uh, um, so I'd probably point to that as, you know, those are directly translatable results that we saw in CPS2. That, you know, very very few studies have data on patients before they became patients and after they were patients. And CPS2 has been going on since 1992, so with that amount of follow-up time, like we're able to follow people into their 80s and 90s and see what factors really influence that long-term survival. Um, the more esoteric stuff, the, the omics-based platforms, I mean, to that I would probably say it's hard um, to battle against something that you don't really understand. And part of, you know, the major driving force with most of that work is to really understand what this disease is. And that's what we're, you know, that's what we're accomplishing through those goals or through those tasks. I would jump on that and say um, one of the neat things that has happened to me since I've been involved in the, the um, early onset trends, which has been a, a decade now, is I've been going to these meetings where there are quite a few survivors who are participating because advocacy organizations are really on this bandwagon. And it's been really 
mind-blowing for me to walk into a meeting and have, I had a woman come up to me and say, you know, so, so nice to meet you. My son just died from colorectal cancer. He was 29 years old. And you're faced with this, like, this is why I do what I do. And they, people want to know why. Why did I get this disease? I'm young. I'm, I'm healthy. I mean, they're not, they're not all overweight or, or anything like that. And in fact, anecdotally, um, it seems to be happening in people who are extreme athletes. Is This is what, what you hear from the clinicians. They're marathon runners and... and, and also, something that we found in our study and looking at these trends by state is that there seemed to be the largest increase in the West, where people in um, Colorado, Washington, Oregon, where people are typically more active. Um, so anyway, um, that, I was diverging a little bit there, but it, just to have that, that face time with people who are, are in the throes of dealing with this, and it's... It, it answers the question of why what you do is important and um, you know it's also important to show the progress we've had against colorectal cancer but identifying these emerging trends um, in order to direct resources toward them is, is also right up there well thanks y'all I appreciate it Thanks, Joe. Sure. Okay. Thank you. This was fun. Maybe we'll do this again sometime. But, yeah. Um, yeah, I learned I learned a lot from mm-hmm. both of you. Yeah, yeah same here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> really? That's good.